This episode of Cognitive Dissonance is brought to you by our patrons. You fucking rock. Be advised that this show is not for children, the faint of heart, or the easily offended. The explicit tag is there for a reason. So before Tom introduces the show, I wanted to talk a little bit about what we recorded here. Uh, we had a gentleman by the name of Scott Reeder came in. Uh, he is a, starting a new podcast called Suspect Convictions. We were contacted by him, and uh, and he came in to talk to us. And, and initially, we started talking a little bit about the news, but we mostly talked about his podcast. And it was so fascinating, we just kept the whole interview uh, just so you know, this interview, it talks uh, about a, a murder that he uh, reported on 26 years ago. That's most of what the the, the interview is going to be about. So there's a couple of pretty graphic depictions of uh, what he saw at the crime scene. So if it makes you squeamish, you might want to skip it. It's a little departure from what we normally do, but we thought it was worthwhile. So we're releasing it as a Thursday show. We hope you enjoy it. We'll be back on Monday with another full show. Recording live from Glory Hole Studios in Chicago, this is Cognitive Dissonance. Every episode we blast anyone who gets in our way. We bring critical thinking, skepticism, and irreverence to any topic that makes the news, makes it big, or makes us mad. It's skeptical, it's political, and there is no welcome at. This is episode 333 of Cognitive Dissonance. In this episode, we are joined by Scott Reeder. Uh, now, Scott, you are uh, a journalist. You've been a journalist for 30 years. You're starting a new program called Suspect Convictions. It's going to begin on January the 9th. You're actually here in our studio. This yeah. is like a, this is our fourth or fifth yeah, in-studio guest. Yeah, we don't get a point. lot of these. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, we, we can't usually get people to actually arrive at the glory hole. Yeah. We put out a lot of ads. <laughs> a lot of ads. We're, we're, we're really hoping. A Craigslist ad has not been It's a lot of denials. Yeah. I'm just saying it's a lot of people... <laughs> There's, there's more interest than you would think, yeah. but it's not as many that yeah, actually yeah, show up. Yeah, so yeah. Welcome, welcome, Scott. Scott. Thank you so much for coming down to the studio. We're up great. to the studio because you're, you're up from Springfield. That's right. Uh, it's great to be here. Man, it's cold, though. It's terrible, isn't it? It's yeah. awful. It's I mean, literally it's like, awful. <laughs> it's just like, you know, I, I just can't get over how cold it is. But it's just like this in Springfield, too. You know, it's awful, but... You know, I've lived a lot of different places. I still like Illinois probably the best. Nobody, nobody's ever said that's yeah. the first time that's ever been uttered. I, <laughs> well, I like the people, this, and I, I like, like. I feel like this is suspect right now. Yeah, there you go. Right, well, you know, with yeah. suspect convictions, guy. That's the name of my podcast. That you know? was a softball to you, Scott. <laughs> yes, there that's you a go. Softball. We'll throw a lot of those out tonight. <laughs> so that's really all we got, pretty much. Well, so tell us a little. You, you obviously you've been a journalist for a long time. Now you're moving into the podcasting world. Yes, you are partnered with NPR. Tell yes. me about your new project. 26 years ago, I was a night cop reporter in Davenport, Iowa, and I got dispatched at 9 o'clock at night to a small fire at a school playground. And, you know, I thought, why the hell is the editor sending me to this? The guy, I just thought the city editor was a moron. I'll be honest <laughs> with you. I still think the city editor at the time is a moron. So okay? the editor of the Davenport is a moron. <laughs> okay. He, okay. He's long gone. You know, sure. uh, had some very good editors since then. So Scott Don't get me wrong. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, I, I'm driving up there. 
I get there at the same time as the first police officer, and I pull up behind the squad car, and the two of us get out, and it's, you could see both of our reactions, like, why are we going to cover a trash fire? I mean, what, what is this, this this thing, you know? So the two of us are walking over, and um, we could see some smoke um, coming up from some tall weeds on the edge of the playground, and, you know, we're just walking over there, no big deal. We get, I get about as close as I am to you, Tom, and I'm about... No, three or four feet away, and um, and look down, and instead of being a trash fire, it's a nine-year-old child oh that's, been, oh. that's been doused with gasoline and set on no, fire. No, 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 I would like my humanity back, please. Yeah. There's <laughs> and, a part of me that is not feeling good right now, which is yeah. all of me. That's like, terrible. It's like, what the fuck? I mean, how? this is the last thing in the world I was expecting to find here. I oh mean, it's God. like... Yeah, you know, I'm just getting sick to my stomach. I'm just like, oh, good God. And so, make a long story short, this is in the days before cell phones. There actually was such a days, guys. You know, <laughs> you know and I, I, we carried around these. Yeah, there like, was beepers. No. Yeah, <laughs> yes, but it, but I, my newsroom was too cheap to have beepers. What we had was a um, great big walkie-talkie. I mean, it was like this size, like maybe like nine inches tall that we had to carry with us along with the police scanner. And that's how we communicated back with the newsroom. So I had to stand there and radio back to the city editor um, information from the scene. And you know, basically, I knew they were going to bring up the crime scene tape immediately as soon as the detectives yeah. got there. So I planted my ass right there and did not move. I mean, I'm standing there two, three feet away from the body, Radio and information in, and either detectives are showing up, the fire department's showing up, they're, they're extinguished the flames on this poor child. God. I'm interviewing the um, the medical examiner, he's there, you know, things are starting to come together. I mean, I'm looking at this body, and she's the body's just covered with melted plastic garbage bags, and it's just horrible, horrible, and... I can't tell if it's a boy or a girl. I mean, just yeah. looking at it. And, and um, you know, medical examiner goes over and says, well, I think it's a 12-year-old girl. And um, that's, that's my estimate on it. And so we're just like there all night. And then the media circus comes, the TV reporters. And they haven't, mind you, they find her at 9 o'clock at night. Of course, they have a 10 o'clock news broadcast. All three stations set up their tripods and their cameras about – eight, nine feet from the body, God. zoom in on it, Jesus. and do live shots. I've never seen that before or oh. since. And Live shots? I'm sorry, live shots? Live of shots body of, of a, a, a smoldering child's body from, uh, you know, going to every living room in oh. uh, the community. God, people, if that's your kid... Sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's, I, that's exactly. Yeah. I mean, people are really... It's uh, horrifying. It's horrifying. I mean, it just I've never seen anything that irresponsible before. And, you know, one station still uses clips from it to whenever the story comes up. It's like, it just, anyway. I So this is what's going on. It's, it's just a zoo. And the other thing that was kind of, the people were tromping all over this crime scene, left and right, all the reporters and everybody else. It was just a total disarray. And... You know, and we're all like, like, who is this kid? How how did she end up here? Yeah, what's going on here? And, and as as the night goes on, a rumor starts spreading on the scene. There's a child missing in Rock Island, Illinois. Of course, Rock Island and Davenport are 
sister cities. They're in different states, but the the school uh, playground is like three miles from where this girl lived uh, in uh, Rock Island, Illinois. She was a child um, born into some very unfortunate circumstances, um, was apparently kidnapped uh, from Rock Island, and um, we later found out she'd been sexually assaulted and strangled and dumped in the playground and set on fire. I mean, so it's like, what kind of monster does something like this? I mean, it's beyond me. So about three days later, they arrest an African-American man. Now, I don't normally talk about race, but in this case, race is a sore spot in this country right now. Sure. And what's interesting here is the... The victim, this little girl, was white. The um, person accused in the crime was African American. Uh, he is a um, he had just been released from prison uh, in Parchment, Mississippi, where he had um, served time for um, armed robbery. And the amount of evidence that was against him at the time was almost non-existent. I mean, somebody had seen the two of them together talking, which was seems perfectly reasonable because, you know, um, he was a friend of the family. Actually, he was uh, – the courtroom testimony seems to indicate that he was providing cocaine to the parents to sell on the west end of Rock Island. That's what okay. – uh, so, so, I mean – I like that that's friend of the family. Yeah, well, I mean <laughs> – My coke dealer is a friend of the family. <laughs> well, but he, hung, but he hung out. I, it's just our family gatherings were a little different. Yeah, <laughs> just, I, I know. You know I, I, I hear you. But not – but he hung out. I'm not judgy. But he hung out at the house. <laughs> yeah, no, a, I got you. And, got you. you know, so, you know, so he's not a nice guy, okay? I, I'll be the first to tell you that. Sure. But the evidence against him is pretty light. I mean, it's people, somebody saw him talking the day before the murder, like um, she was on her bicycle and he was in his car and they were chatting. And he was got real, but, so the evidence is really thin. And... The police bring him in, and they bring the parents in, and they they run them all through polygraphs. Now, we're show of skeptics. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of questions as to the validity of polygraphs. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, two parents pass the um, polygraph. This guy apparently fails the polygraph. Okay. So they focus the entire investigation on him. Now... It also, uh, I think, provided reassurance to the prosecutors in the case. Well, you know, um, this must be the guy that did it. You know, we don't have a lot of evidence at this point. But, you know, he failed the polygraph. And so it became like tunnel vision. And so they start looking. And and they, they decide to charge him. And it's like, okay. But they have no physical evidence tying no, him to No, the in fact... Um, they searched his, um, the room where he was living. He lived in a hotel room. Uh, found no evidence of the little girl there. Mm-hmm. They searched the car that he was driving. Found no evidence of um, her having been in the car. At the scene, um, they um, took all kinds of samples and evidence. Didn't find any evidence of him being there. In fact, altogether, they, they had something like 10,000, 10,000 forensic samples taken from the place this guy lived, the car he was driving, and the crime scene where uh, the body was found, they found absolutely nothing linking him 
to the scribe or her to um, to him. And you and obviously that this to just to speak to that, you said she was sexually assaulted. Did they? Yes. Do, they did. I would have presumed DNA was. They said they did not find any DNA. Okay. Um, gotcha. So okay. you know that could mean that he's a, he's a what's the, what's the term non um, secretor. So non secretor, yeah. correct. Or it could mean you know since the fire may have destroyed DNA. There's there's a lot of things. So there's no there's essentially no forensic evidence linking these two, which is troubling. I mean, you know, and, you know, I know we're in a CSI world now where we expect everything to be perfect, but even 26 years ago, that was that raised some red flags. And this this is they 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 they, they actually charged this guy. Yeah, you, and a lot of it you got to remember is a murder this horrific in a community of 250,000. The community is an absolute utter complete oh, panic. Sure. Yeah. I mean, They've all looked on their television sets. This is back when everybody watched the evening news, local evening news, and saw this horrible thing. It's probably the most horrible thing that they ever seen in their lives. It's, I can tell you, being having been at the scene, uh, I've been all over the world. I've done a lot of different stories. I've done, you know, I was right at the in Bosnia right after the conflict. I've done a lot of things. This is the most horrible thing I have ever seen in my life, and I. Pray it's the most horrible thing I ever will see. I mean, this is just, and but everybody in the community got to see this. Sure. I mean, it was brought right into their living rooms, and so the community's in a panic. And the prosecutor in the case, uh, he goes, he he pulls his office and says, "Do you think we have enough to charge him with?" Everyone in the office said, almost everyone in the office said, "No, there's not enough here to charge him." And he says, he says, "You know, I'm not uh, answerable." to the people in this office, I'm answerable to the voters, and we need to get this guy off the streets. This is something on the record. Wow. So, so he's told me this, uh, you know, we got him on tape talking about this. And so he, they take it, they arrest this guy, and they have a news conference, and the detective that's in charge of it, he's just, um, he goes out and he says, calls the man an animal. I mean, think about this. I mean, this that's is... poisoning the pool, right? In terms it's poisoning of the, the pool. I mean, yeah. the whole community is just... Right. Upset, and then lo and behold, three days later, uh, they have a witness come forward, and the witness was lived about was in a house about two blocks from the school playground, and she said she just happened to look out the window, and she saw um, tail lights near the fire, and she thought, "Wow, that's interesting," and. Didn't think anything of it. And then suddenly, she, after she hears about the murder down there, mm. she comes forward. And uh, she, she be, and flash forward to the trial. They bring in, this woman becomes a star witness. They star br- witness who's seen taillights. Seen, seen taillights, yes. They bring her in. When that's the, your star witness. That's your star witness. Wow. Okay. Um, All right. She's seen taillights. Um they they literally unveil in front of the jury the back half of the car in the courtroom and the the woman sitting there on the on the uh, witness stand they turn the lights off in the courtroom they use a motorcycle battery to turn on the tail lights what yes. this is just theater this is this just theater. theater it's theater yeah, it's, it's theater courtroom theater and, theater and she says I'd recognize those taillights anywhere. What the uh, f- uh, Are yeah. you kidding me? I would recognize those taillights? 
And, and mind you, she, when she saw I him from two blocks away, <laughs> when, she, when she saw him from two blocks away, she didn't know she was looking at a murder. She didn't know. She, she just right. thought it was taillights in a car. So, yeah, it's like, but she became the star in this case. I mean, and then the other big witness against this guy was... What is the defense supposed to do? Bring in a different car? Be like, is this your car? In all seriousness, I, I talked to a, yeah. a, a friend, an expert on eyewitness testimony, and she said, well, that's what they should have done is had an array of taillights on photos of them and, and showed them to her and had her pick out yeah. what taillights yeah. she thought she right. saw yeah, right. or something. Right. I mean... But they didn't do that. It's now, like I, I just I do have a question. The, the the suspect in question, was he the only one that had ever purchased this particular automobile in all of time in history? In, in, just, in, in, in fairness, it, in it, fairness. It's not DNA here, right? Okay. It's, like I have in a fair, Mazda, in, they sell a lot of those. Okay. In fairness, it was a Peugeot and it was in the Rust Belt oh, in 1990. Okay. Right, I mean, right. so, you that's, know. It's yeah. almost like DNA. Yeah. It's almost like DNA. I mean, it's like there weren't a whole yeah. lot of Peugeots. Right. It was an around. AMC Gremlin. It's like, okay, well, fine, yeah. fuck me then. Yeah. I guess that's it. There, yeah. An uh, AMC Gremlin would have been a lot more common in this community than, than a Peugeot. But yeah. still. Okay. Yeah, I hear you. Um, so you, you have a Peugeot. So, so anyway. <laughs> you fl- so this woman became the star witness. The other big witness in the case was the cellmate. In the county jail with this guy, he okay. says he testified. Yeah, he admitted to doing it to uh, doing mm. the crime. Okay. Now, Jailbird. flash yeah. forward twenty years. Uh, what we find out is this star witness had been a undercover police informant. What the what? Okay, all right. Uh, and we found that she'd gotten vouchers paid to her. Sure. Over a five-year period. Outrageous. And they, according to the appellate court briefs, the vouchers had been signed by the same detective that was in charge of this investigation. So she was basically doing, doing undercover drug buys and right, other things. Yeah. So, but this never was disclosed to anyone. Yeah, that she and, has a financial interest in, in yes. helping this case, right? And yes. A, and a relationship with the detective. Exactly. I mean, <clears throat> and it's a little bit unclear whether her relationship began before the um, this case or after this case. I mean, it's well, from reading bad, the, yeah. the courtroom stuff, it's a little unclear. Okay. Um, but anyway, regardless... 26 years pass. I do a lot of different things. I move up through the ladder in the journalism. I end up being a reporter in Las Vegas. Then I come back and I um, to the Midwest. I um, run a state house bureau for a chain of newspapers for 10 years. Then, I, um, then I'm recruited by a um, national nonprofit to start a national news service. Um, was there a ma- this founding managing editor did that for three years. Then I went on and um, started a statewide news service um, affiliated with another nonprofit. Did that for uh, four years. We're going through a restructuring um, back in the spring, and they're moving me into a different position. You know, same pay, but it wasn't a job I really wanted to do. And I was talking to my wife. I said, you know, I want something to do something that's re- I'm really passionate about. And she said, what if you always wanted to write? What do you want? What I was wanting to do? And I said, I've always wanted to write a book about this murder case. It's always fascinated me. I think there's so many things about this that are just don't make any sense. Sure. She okay. Said, we'll do it. 
You know, <laughs> you know, it's like God bless the woman. You know, it's like, hey, you know, you know, she's given me a green light to go and pursue a dream. So, I start writing a book and I start, you know, doggedly going out and just hunting down all the witnesses in the case, and they're scattered all over the U.S. and I'm interviewing them, and I, so I decided, you know, I'm going to go and hunt down this woman. Sure. And I find, I locate her. And By her tail lines? No. Oh, no. Just <laughs> otherwise. There's yes. other ways. So there's other ways to identify people. Okay, just. Yeah, there you go. I'm sorry, I'm a little so, slow. Yeah, there you go. Did she so, drive a Peugeot? No, she didn't drive a Peugeot. <laughs> no, okay. All right. <laughs> but she's sitting on the front porch of her house, and um, there's somebody out mowing the yard, and I'm just showing up. Um, and I sit down with her and on the front porch, and I introduce myself and turn on a tape recorder and we just start talking and and I said, you know, did you know anybody at the police department before you know, before this? Nope. Didn't know anybody down there. Well, did you um uh, what was your relation did you have a relationship with the police? Nope. Didn't have any relationship with the police. Well tell me what you saw, you know, and she so she repeats the story and I'm like, okay, this doesn't make any sense. And then as I questioned her a little bit more, she got a little more agitated. And then finally, she kicked me off her porch and said, oh. you know, I'm asking you to leave. Um, anyway, so yeah, that's part of the course. It also proves, disproves the um, the old joke. How do you get a journalism a person with a journalism degree to leave your front porch? Oh. Pay for the pizza. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. But anyway, so, you know, I'm like, but this doesn't make any sense. Even the prosecution in the appellate briefs admits that she was a police informant. Right. Everybody is agreeing and singing off the same song sheet today that she was a police informant, except for her. Think about that. Right. It's like... She she didn't know to get on the page. She's still denying stuff. Exactly. And we have this guy that's a cellmate, and he's a career criminal, and... You know, he's a, that's a hard way to make a living. The, the it is a very hard yeah. way to li- make a living. Yeah. You know? Insurance sucks. I and know. The 401k on that is just yeah, no it ma- is. There's no matchy-matchy yeah. on that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, they do provide free lodging. <laughs> <laughs> so he just gotten released from prison in Nebraska, and he spent like, I don't know, 27, 30 years in prison. I mean, he's just in and out. He could turn right around. He turned around. Yeah. And... and so I I, I, I I managed to trace him to Sioux City, Iowa, and I thinking, okay, you know, I'm just going to drive to Sioux City, you know, which is a fairly good sized city, and see if I can find him, you know. And so I drive out there, and I have an address for his brother. Knock on the door, and I and his brother comes to the door, and I said, hey, I'm looking for um, Frank Rising, and I you know I'm just wondering if you could tell him. Tell me where I could find him. We don't know anybody named Frank Rising. And I'm looking in. It's his wife at the door, and I'm looking in at the couch, and I said, sorry, I looked on Facebook. You look just like him. You're his brother. You're his brother. And uh, I said, this is really, I explained, this is really important and what I'm working on. And he invites me in and said, yeah, I'm his brother. And we, we get to talking. And I like that. You can't bullshit me. Yeah. I've got Facebook. Yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> Who are you crapping? So... I talk him into calling his brother. His brother's on a construction site. He'd just gotten out, and he hands me the phone, and I'm talking to him. No, I don't want to talk to you. And I go, and we're going back and forth. And I said, you know, I've driven eight hours to Sioux City, Iowa, 
you know, I mean, come on, guy, at least give me 15 minutes. And he goes, no, no, I don't want to talk to you. And we're going back and forth. And finally I said to him, okay, guy, you know, I've driven eight hours out here. My wife is going to freaking kill me if I don't come back with an interview. She's going to be mad at me for driving eight hours out here and eight hours back and not having anything and taking that time away from the family. Can't you at least give me a break? I don't want to have to take that, take, put up with that for my wife. And she goes, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I love, <laughs> I love that you appealed to his better nature. Yes. And he's a career criminal. He's just like, well, so. I, I look, man, we've all been in it with our wives. Am I right, guys? Yes. <laughs> Nobody wants to be in the doghouse. So, spent a lot of time in the big house. So, so I go out, and he's this guy to a, the, the construction site. And it's like, oh, at this point, it's like 8 o'clock at 8, 8.30 at night. And, He's troweling concrete, and he sees me. And so we go over into the um, parking lot, and we do the interview. Um, and we're talking back and forth. And he's he's an interesting guy. I mean, um, he's he's tough looking. I mean, he you could tell he's done really hard time. And and he's talking about his time in Fort Madison. The first time I stabbed a guy. And I'm like, the oh, first yeah. time you stabbed you the guy in prison? You never your first time. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You give a little kiss, like, was it special for you? <laughs> like, <okay. laughs> so we're, we're talking about it. And you know, he's like, okay, okay. Well, tell me how on earth did you came to testify for this against him? And uh, he goes, well, I figured that they were trying to force something because they took me out of my cell and they put me in the cell with this guy. And it's like, why are they putting me in a cell with this guy? And you know, the other thing that's an undercurrent here is this rank, rising is white, the defendant's black. They both have done hard time in mm. really tough prisons. Sure. I mean, parchment where, where the um, defendant, Stanley Liggins, was at uh, is what they based Cool Hand Luke on, that movie, uh, I don't know, came back in the yeah, 70s. Yeah. And it's a tough place. And, you know, rising had done time at Fort Madison, which is a really rough prison, too. So they're they're in this the cell, and he goes, we wouldn't speak to each other. I go, I don't know how that works. You're in a tiny little cell, and you sit next to each other for weeks on end, and you don't talk to each other. But apparently they did. And he said, they were watching TV one day, and the news comes on, and it's this case. And he goes, hey, that's you. <laughs> and the and supposedly the um, defendant, Stanley Lincoln, says, yeah, well, they'll never get me for it. Now... If that he didn't he didn't say that, I think you can interpret that a lot of different ways. Yeah, for sure. Wait, I mean, that's supposed can, to be the big confession. That's the big confession. That's the big yeah. confession. Well, I mean, so, that combined with the tail lights. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's very but, compelling. Okay. Now he says, according to Rising, that the sheriff's department had the um, had a bug in the cell, and when they heard that, they brought him out, and they said, if you don't testify against this guy. We're going to charge you as an accessory to murder. Oh, shit. And he's saying, and then they showed him the horrible pictures from the scene. And he says, you know, this is the grossest thing I've ever seen. And, and they convinced him that this is the guy who did it. And we need his testimony. And this is according to him. This is you sure. know, me yeah. talking to him. And he goes, and you know, he said, I, I'm just, uh, I felt like I had to testify because they were going to charge me as an accessory after the fact. Saying I charged me with murder, and of course I've talked to defense attorneys since then. They said absolute nonsense. They couldn't have done that. But one thing that never made much sense to me 
is the U.S. Supreme Court said police officers can lie in interrogations, and they can lie about what consequences somebody faces if they don't provide testimony sure. and other things. So, you know, this is not a particularly well-educated person, and he's like, gosh, you know, what's, what, what's going to happen? Well, oh, yeah, scared the shit out of him, I'm yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, I you know. felt He felt over a barrel, okay. right? So I'm talking to if him. If what he's saying is true. If what he's saying yeah. is true, you know. you know, <clears throat> yeah. And take everything with a grain of salt, because, you know, these are career criminals we're talking about. And so I said, well, you testified in the um, trial that you hadn't been offered anything in exchange for your testimony. And he goes, yeah, that's true. And I said, well... I noticed that you got sent instead of uh, to Rockwell City um, for a prison rather than to Fort Madison or Anamosa, which are like Shawshank Redemption prisons, really like hell on earth no sort good. of places. No good. You got to read a Hayworth poster. It's yeah. not Yeah, there you go. Yeah. It, he ended, though, you know, with uh, Raquel Welch, which was a much better right. poster, yeah. by the way. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Well, I said, you got sent to Rockwell City instead of to um, Fort Madison. And Fort Madison's the kind of place where Rapes are routine, stabbings are routine in that era. In that era, I mean, it was just really nasty, dangerous place. Rockwell City, on the other hand, is kind of like a, it's a modern prison. It's been built. You're not dealing with the long rows of cell blocks and the and the walls. You're. It's a much more humane. safer place, yeah, humane uh, place yeah, to okay. be. Sure. So. It was a big deal to get sent there. And he goes, yeah, they did offer to send me to Rockwell City instead of to one of these other places. But then he adds, but, you know, Fort Madison, it's got cable TV. And I go, <laughs> okay. I go, yeah, it has daily yeah. raves, but hey, but it has cable TV. Daily you raves, know? but cable TV. I don't know I'd trade that. But, wait, do I, I get showtime? Because <laughs> Old Man is fucking rock solid this season. <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, we're, so, so, oh, we, so, we, so I go back and I talk to the prosecutor. And I go, well, this doesn't make any sense. He right. says he says he was threatened. That's not true. He he just making up a reason for for why he became a snitch. And it's like, okay, but if he's lying now, how do we know he wasn't lying then? I mean, it just, it just things that just don't add up. So anyway, all this this. Uh, I, as an aside, I love the idea that that he's not believable. He's believable when he says X. But he's not. But he's not believable when he says why. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so it's it's just look. It, can we just all agree that the believability of this character is just generally in question, right? Yeah, exactly. And 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 then we'll stop there, and yeah. then we'll call that a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, essentially, these are the two pillars that this conviction's sitting on. Now, the uh, Iowa appellate court had re- reviewed this case. They said, you know, there's some problems here. You think? And they um, decided they're going to grant a new trial, which is coming up in May, okay. folks. I mean, so I've been traveling around, and one of the things, other things that happened was the police det- allegedly happened. What the appellate court found, I should put it, phrase it this way, is there were 78 police reports that were not turned over to the defense during discovery. Well, it's only six and a half dozen, though. Yeah, That's not there you go. And they uh, apparently contained exculpatory evidence. That's a fancy lawyer way for saying they had evidence pointing to somebody else doing it. And in there was a report that said, and I stress, this is not verified. This is just something in a police report that's been cited in an appellate court brief. It doesn't mean it's true. But somebody had come forward and said, 
This guy was a cocaine uh, customer of the father, stepfather in the case, mm-hmm. and she, uh, the person said that she didn't have enough money to buy uh, cocaine that week. So she went to her drug dealer and said, hey, can I give you my video camera? Now, this is 1990 when video cameras were really valuable. Sure. And said, can I use it as collateral? And when I have enough money, I will give you uh, sure. the yeah. rest. Okay. I'll, I'll gladly give yeah. you my video camera today for, for some cocaine, cocaine on Tuesday. Yeah, yeah I yeah. mean, apparently she wanted cocaine <laughs> right now. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, Funny that cocaine I know. does that. On a yeah. Yeah. No, I'll wait. No, I'll wait. I'll wait. I'm good. <laughs> so, yeah. anyway. No, I'm, full. I'm full of coke. I, I had coke for lunch. <laughs> so, anyway. So, she's like, okay. So, this is the week, apparently the week before the murder. The day the body is found and identified, before any evidence, anything is really presented to the public, before any of the autopsy results or anything else, before they know there's a sexual assault, before they know anything about this case, people who this woman knew, and she later confirmed this, came forward and said, well, you know, when he gave, when I offered him the the, um, camera, he said, you know, I could use that to make shoot porn flicks with my um, daughter, stepdaughter. Oh, this is what's according what? to um, uh, Jesus. Who just says that? I don't know. Even if you're thi- like, hold on a second, because even if you're thinking that, yeah. even if that's maybe going that's through your head, that's your internal dialogue. There should right? be a filter. Right? There. Yes. <laughs> ah! <laughs> that should not make it past wow. that filter. Okay. Wow. Jesus. So, he actually Ooh. said something a little more explicit than that, but I'm, I'm not sure. going to go there, even on this show. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, don't be sorry. I don't okay. need to hear that. Okay. Allegedly yeah. said, I should, I should add. Allegedly but this is, said, this, yeah. is, this, is, this is something that is according to the appellate court briefs. I mean, it, this, was, this was one of the police reports that was withheld. You know, I'm, I'm talking to the prosecutor that uh, handled the case, and he goes, that guy's a bullshitter. You know, he just likes to tell stories. He's, he's harmless. And it's like, who tells a story like that about their kid, you know? <laughs> Like monsters, mean, yeah. monsters do that. That's that's who does that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so like, God. So in the years since, this guy has disappeared, the stepfather, and we, um, I hired a private investigator, which I've never done before in my thirty years in the business, mm. to see if we could find him. We traced him as far as New Orleans to a homeless shelter. Actually, I got an address um, for. For in New Orleans, so back in the spring, I drove down there. I thought, you know, I'm so smart. I'm just going to show up like I did at this other person's house and knock on their door and get them to tell me what's going on. And I show up. It's an apartment building. I think, oh, that's kind of interesting. So I knock on the door. It's a homeless shelter for um, drug addicts and uh, other people with addictions. And I go, oh, okay. And they wouldn't tell me if he was there or not. And I'm thinking, but you know, the address I got from the my investigator says he was here, and this seemed to fit, you know. So, flash forward six months. Two weeks ago, I went back down there with my nephew and um, hunting for him because we figured he's homeless somewhere in, in um, New Orleans. And I take out a photo of him that was from one of his police mugshots. This guy has a lot of priors. And I'm showing it around. And they go, oh, yeah, I know that guy. He panhandles over here. Oh, I know that guy. He's here. I went to some shelters. They pulled him up on his computer. Yeah, he's 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 been here in this state, this state. So we looked looked and looked for him. We didn't find him, but we know that he has at some point been homeless in New Orleans. We don't know where he is today or what's going on with him. 
that's kind of an aside on this. But so you have this case coming up, and he, so one of the things that, that, that since this is a show about skeptical thinking, I I thought you know where was the skeptical thinking in this case? Who was who? What kind of people served on the jury that convicted him? Mm. And, and uh, so I call started calling jurors. Uh, which is always a lot of fun. People who sat on the jury. I would imagine there would be a lot of animosity there. <clears throat> As an aside, if I were a juror uh-huh. and I sent someone to prison for their life and you came to me and said, you know, here's some, here's some details or talk to me about the case or what have you, and I felt like, because you, you want that to be the right decision, right? You've got a vested emotional interest in having made the right decision. I, I would imagine that there's a lot of confirmation bias that would go into that to prove to yourself that you just didn't send a man to prison against, you know, th- that was that was wrongful, you know. Yeah. Actually, you would think it would be like that guy, yeah. you know. Where, but my real, my my situation, my experience with interviewing jurors in big cases like this is exactly the opposite. Really, That's this is one of the highlights of their lives. You take very ordinary people who maybe spend their day working on an assembly line in a factory or working behind a counter in a in a grocery store. And suddenly they get to make a life or death decision. Get to? Uh, get, I mean, a lot of people, this is No, like, I know, but I'm just like, I'm... I'm but a, there's a lot of people that this is a big deal. This is a highlight of their life. They, they're they important. They're making a momentous decision on somebody's life. Oh, my God. I mean, this is a big deal. And they remember the details of the case because it's such a big deal. Uh, so there's this one juror. I never could figure out how he got on the jury. I'll be honest with you. He was. Um, Did he know a guy? No. <laughs> well, he drives okay. a show. Now, mind so. you, this is this is the early '90s. He was a white South African who had immigrated to Iowa because he wanted to get away from Nelson Mandela. Now, I don't claim to be Ethley Bailey, but if I'm picking somebody to be on this ju- jury, yeah, I would. I, think, I would and you got a that, black yeah. man, and you're defending a black man who's accused of killing a white girl, and. A very overwhelmingly white community. Yeah, take him from a country with systemic racism. That yes. works. Yeah. And, and so, so he's kind of raised some issues, but you know, hey, there are you can't judge always be right. So I thought I'd talk to this guy and see, you know, what his thoughts were. You know, so I I'm love talk- America. These hoods I get to wear over my head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm talking to this guy, and he's got this thick South African accent, and we're chatting, and he's talking about the trial and how much he remembers it, and I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool, you know. Because, like I said, it's a highlight of a lot of folks' lives. I mean, really, one of the highlights is remembering being an important person, making an important decision. This is a big deal. And I said, you know, I'm going to ask, you know, because, you know, you are from South Africa, and, you know, this is a black man on trial, and, you know, it's a white victim. I mean, are you, you feel you're racist? And he goes, no, I'm not racist. And I'm, oh, okay, okay. He said, you know, I think black folks have really had a bad bad deal and then he explains and this is a paraphrase but I think it's pretty close you see we all originated from Africa and people uh, who immigrated to Europe their skin became lighter and their brains became bigger yeah but I'm not racist and, at all and, and then he starts, I'm not a racist at all I'm just saying that my brain be- yeah. <laughs> Jesus. And then I said, well, and I was like, okay, how do you respond to this? Okay. So he's explaining this to me, and I'm going, okay. And I go, well, did you, were you skeptical of, would it, would it change your idea 
on um, that woman's testimony if you knew that now today that she was a police informant? And he said, well, you know, I think black people scheme against white people. They don't scheme against each other. But I am not racist at all. That's just not. Yeah, just, like, like, yeah. right. <clears throat> that's a paraphrase. Yeah, sure. So, so I think, I'm sure oh, it was a lot more subtle. Yes. <laughs> and and, and, and I just don't have the testimony right in yeah, front of yeah, me. I'm reading it. But this is like, okay. Um, so I, I'm like, okay. Uh, so then I thought, well, you know, I should talk to some other jurors. You have these jurors, and they're, they're, they're the finders of fact. They're the ones that are supposed to be the bullshit detectors in the courtroom. You know, seeing if the, the witness is looking over to the lawyer for a tip, you know, how to, how to, how to testify or looking at, you know, how are people responding, all these things. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe it's lost on this whole issue of the informant um, would make a difference to other jurors. So I call up this one juror, and we're talking, nice guy, salt of the earth. And, you know, he was the holdout juror. There was actually two trials originally. First trial, I won't go into all that, but there were two trials. This guy's in the next next trial, and he, he goes... He was kind of a holdout juror. He was one of the last to vote for guilty. And he goes, you know, I said, would it have changed your view on things if you knew that this woman had been a police informant? He goes, oh, no. It, made her, it, would, it would mean to me that she's more, more reliable because that means that she had a relationship with the police and they know she told, always told the truth. Mm. Well, okay, um, That's a weird hmm. thing to come to. Yeah, That's but not- I mean, it's... Wrong, we had, we we are brought up in a society where a lot we're taught from K through twelve not to question authority. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's unfortunate, sure, but sure. we we have a system that breeds conformity, um, and critical thinking is not something that's really valued a lot. So we have this, you know. So we're talking to jurors, and I'm like, is anybody thinking about this? Like. You know, in a critical sense, like, you know, uh, and so, yeah, we have this. I mean, there's just a lot of things that have come up as we've dug into this that just don't add up. So anyway, I, I'm doing all this investigating for the, for the book. And I'll be really honest with you. I've never really been a podcast person. I mean, I occasionally will listen to them here and there. Um, but you know, not a big deal. And I heard about this podcast called Serial, mm-hmm. and um, um, my wife and I were on a road trip, and I said, "Well, let's just listen to this." I mean, I think it'd be a kind of interesting case to 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 hear. So we listened to it, and it's, you know, the Anon story, and you know, the Baltimore guy who's serving time for yeah. murder of his yeah. girlfriend yeah. And, mm-hmm. and there's questions about his guilt and, and we're listening to it and I said to my wife my murder is so much more interesting <laughs> than <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and we, we get to talk it and I go you know I'm writing a book on it but I bet I could do a podcast you know, I don't have the technical expertise. Neither do I. It didn't stop me. Yeah. yeah so you know, but so I, I, so like, as soon as we get back from our road trip, I, I call um, a friend of mine who's at an NPR station, and I say, hey, uh, you know, I got this case, and I think it's so interesting, and uh, I'd like to meet with your general manager and talk about it and see if there's some interest here, and and um, 
So I tell them about it and make an appointment. I get up there and it's like, this is fabulous. And before I had hardly said a thing, and he goes, I'm going to give you a producer to work with you for four months. Oh, oh wow. wow. And, like, yeah. and we'll, we'll do this together. So, um, so I'm obviously a very experienced reporter who knows very little about broadcasting, and she's a very young, very talented um, producer who knows an awful lot about um, production. And I started hauling all my files up and all these like 50, 60 uh, interviews I have on tape. I, I call it tape. It's really audio. What do you recall? What do you, whatever we call recordings now. We, I don't know. Mm. We just go with recording. I yeah. All, I bring like all these the, recordings uh, and we, we start yeah. going through them and the transcripts we have of them and we start putting things together. And listening, I'll be honest with you, it's freaking awesome, the stuff we have. We have people sharing things that you never thought they'd share. We have, I mean, I, and I know you think you've heard all this, the, the highlights of the story. There's a lot of really terse, twists and turns in here that I've just glossed over. But we're finding out stuff in this. It just blows your mind. So we're, we're launching with five episodes uh, January 9th. And we're really excited about it. I think the production quality is excellent. I think, you know, I, I will. I guess I'll go out on a limb and say I think the reporting on this is really thorough, too. I mean, we're asking a lot of questions that nobody has really asked in this case before. And yeah, we're really getting, we're getting to uh, the heart of things. So we're excited about that. Uh, suspectconvictions.com. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it's, it's coming together really well. And it's a story, I think, that's very compelling. But the thing that, from a storytelling point of view, that's mm -hmm. really cool about this, unlike, you know, Serial, which is a really compelling story as well. Sure. We have an event on the horizon here. He's coming up on trial in May. Yeah. yeah We're going to know how the story's going to end. Yeah. Yeah. So in you May. can follow it right up to yeah. the point. Yeah. So that's people can start, you know, when January rolls around, they can, yeah. they can listen to, you know, and we, the other thing we, that makes the story a little bit distinct, too, is we didn't just focus on the accused. We looked at the life of this, this little girl. Mm. Because I think that's, that was one of the things that gives me pause on the, the serial series and some others, is it focused exclusively on the accused, but didn't really tell much about you know, the, the, the victim. The victim. Yeah. Hey, you know, we don't know yeah. much about her other than she was a Korean American and from a very conservative home, but we really don't know what, what right. did she like to do? What was, what was she do for fun? Yeah. Who what, was she? Who yeah. was she? Yeah. Right. So we spent, we have a whole episode just set aside to looking at the life of this, um, nine year old girl. Uh, and so what, how many episodes do you think this show is going to, is going to have? You got, you have five that drop in January and then do you have a run for this, or are you just going to kind of take it through? To, we're going to we have five conditions. dropping in January, February. We um, I think we're going to take a have an episode looking specifically at race and race relations and how it plays into this case, uh, and you know, then we're going to look. Then we have the preliminary motions being taken for four days in February, and we're going to look at the legal strategies that are going to be going. But then we're going to really dig deep and. Look, uh, as we approach the um, May trial, mm -hmm. I'm I'm thinking we're probably looking at it, at least a dozen, maybe 15 uh, okay. uh, episodes looking at the case 
and we're trying to look at all angles of it as it leads up to it. And so, now I got a question. Sure. So, so you've got these, you know, this this plan to have what sounds to be a very interesting, uh, very cool investigative journalist podcast. Now, second season, we're looking at 26 years from now, you'll have a second season you could do. <laughs> well, you know, one and of the reasons we, we picked um, a title that's not specific to this case I is see. we want, I'm going to be looking at other cases. Oh, very cool. And, you know, they may be in other parts of the country, they may be here in Illinois, but we're going to be looking at other cases and just kind of making this to a series of cases oh, like nice. this. So it's like a continuous process. Um, sure, I, I see this as something that has enormous potential. And do you think? Do you think that the, you know? So that so we see the the popularity of the podcast serial, and the popularity of that podcast caused Adnan to get a second trial right. based on this. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that you know? And I know that there's a lot of different. Uh, nonprofit groups out there that try to overturn wrongful convictions and do this sort of work. Do you think this is another tool that that you know that that people can sort of turn to to try to get the story out about people who they think are truly innocent? Yes, but I don't think it's a particularly startling new tool. I mean, you go back to Clarence Darrow; he was an expert at using the media to try to get acquittals for his for his client. I mean. Prosecutors for years have used the media to taint the jury pool to try to um, get a conviction. Sure. Yeah, the, media, true, yeah. the media has always been a integral part of the justice system. I mean, heck, in the in the U.S. Constitution, one of the things that's guaranteed is a public trial. That's because you know the, the news media is a part of the mix. I yeah. mean, you know, yeah. it's, it always has been. So. Yeah, I, I think podcasts could be a part of it, but I think that the media has always been a part of it in some mix or, or yeah, another. Yeah, that's true. What I think is interesting is I think in a lot of ways this may be the future of journalism. I mean, I've done a lot of different things, obviously, in the business. I've worked with nonprofits for the last seven years. And these nonprofits that I worked with were ideological nonprofits. They were free market think tanks. But we did, you know... They didn't interfere with the, with the editorial product at all, but um, you know they, we looked at different things. Everybody's funded by somebody, um, you know whether it's the car dealer down the street or whether it's with a, by a think tank or whether yeah, sure. it's funded by somebody. What's interesting about the podcast is it creates a potential for an individual journalist or a small group of journalists to self fund. I mean to be, you know be yeah. funded by you know to. Operate independently. It used to be when I got out of journalism school. You want to start your own publication, huh? Can you afford a thirty million dollar printing press? Didn't think so. That was it. I mean, you, your ability to um, access the masses was pretty limited, unless yeah. you wanted to try doing a mimeograph machine. I mean, there were a few underground. They called them underground newspapers. that did that back then. But other than that, you know, I mean, now the potential for an individual to do good journalism on their own is so much greater. You got the internet, you can there's so many opportunities and things you can do there and the, the threshold for getting on the internet is so low, which is wonderful for in one sense for good journalism, but we also as we talked about earlier creates some real perils yeah, some real too as far too. as yeah, you know yeah. f- false news stories and sure, other things yeah. out there. But then you know, podcasts it's such a fantastic medium. It's so portable. I mean 
you know, it used to be with broadcast journalism, if you'd missed the news story on the radio, you were out of luck. Now you can carry it around with you in your pocket and listen to it whenever you want to. Yeah. I mean, that is so compelling. And so a lot of things about podcasts, about internet journalism in general, is just exciting. I mean, it's got the potential to just absolutely revolutionize how news is conveyed to um, to people. And it also gives a greater opportunity for experimentation about how we do things. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, it's just a whole new medium. There's no paradigm to stick within. Like you do in a newsroom, like I can't tell you how many times in newsrooms, we don't do that because we don't do that. It's always We always have done it this way. We okay. can do it whatever way we want to do yeah. it. So it's exciting. Yeah, I, you know, I think this has got enormous potential. I mean, yeah, I'm excited about it. So, so if people were going to find this podcast, this is your chance. Where would they look? Well, our website is suspectconvictions.com. Of course, it'll be available on iTunes. It'll be available on um, other places where you can get a uh, download podcast. We're very excited about it. Again, it's Suspect Convictions. Thanks so much for joining us, Scott. This was a lot of fun. This was interesting. Thank you. I appreciate you guys having me. We want to thank Scott Reeder for joining us this episode. You can check out Suspect Convictions at suspectconvictions.com. Thanks, Scott, for joining us today. We're going to leave you like we always do with the Skeptic's Creed. Credulity is not a virtue. It's fortune cookie cutter, mommy issue, hypno Babylon bullshit. Couched in scientician, double bubble, toil and trouble, pseudo quasi alternative, acupunctuating, pressurized, stereogram, pyramidal, free energy, healing, water, downward spiral, brain dead pan, sales pitch, late night info docutainment. Leo Pisces, cancer cures, detox, reflex, foot massage, death in towers, tarot cars, psychic healing, crystal balls, Bigfoot, Yeti, aliens, churches, mosques, and synagogues, temples, dragons, giant worms, Atlantis, dolphins, truthers, birthers, witches, wizards, vaccine nuts, shaman healers, evangelists, conspiracy, doublespeak, stigmata, nonsense. Expose your signs. Thrust your hands, bloody, evidential, conclusive. Doubt even this. The opinions and information provided on this podcast are intended for entertainment purposes only. All opinions are solely that of Glory Hole Studios, LLC. Cognitive dissonance makes no representations as to accuracy, completeness, currentness, suitability, or validity of any information, and will not be liable for any errors, damages, or butthurt arising from consumption. All information is provided on an as-is basis. No refunds. Produced in association with the local Dairy Council and viewers like you.